This is a story, whether you grew up in church or not, if you um, have lived in the United States or in the West even, this is a story that is uh, very familiar to you. This is something that you know well. Um, I remember a few years ago, Ann and I lived in Dallas, and um, I was going to visit someone, and you guys won't remember this over here, uh, but you had to print your directions out on MapQuest, and you would have the, the printout, and I had it in the passenger seat, and I'm driving around downtown Dallas trying to find um, the, where my appointment was, and all of a sudden I had this strange sense of deja vu. It was like overpowering, to the point that I, I pulled the car over, and I got out, and I was looking around, and I, could, I was like, if I, right by, around that corner should be a building with white brick, and I go look, and sure enough, I'm like, what in the world? And as I'm looking around, I see up on a building over here, a sign that said shooter and an arrow pointing to the window, and I realized that I was standing in Dealey Plaza. And so, you know, there's the grassy knoll, there's all this stuff, and I, I had that sense of I knew where I was even though I'd never been there. I mean, I knew what the buildings looked like from watching the Zapruder film, from, from seeing things over and over and over again. It felt familiar. And th- this story feels that way. It feels like we've been there, we know everything about it, and I want us to take some time and slowly go through this because there are some things about this story that I think, I think we missed and I think that maybe we've overlooked. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. John, uh, Mark, Matthew, one of those guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Matthew is, is beginning his story. And he said, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, betrothed uh, means something different than we think. When we hear the word betrothed, we automatically, in our minds, think engaged. And we picture somebody like on one knee, you know, holding a ring. I, when Ann and I got engaged, we actually got engaged twice. Um, we got engaged the first time. I said, uh, hey, why don't, why don't we get married? Uh, I love you. You love me. This, let's get married. And she looked at me with love deep in her eyes, and she said, what are we going to eat, our shoes? Um, and so that was so romantic and beautiful that I decided to do it differently. And being the kind of guy that I am, what I did was she was going to college at Texas A&M. Don't, don't tell any of you SEC guys, but she was going to school at Texas A&M and um, there was a, a piece of joint there at Texas A&M that was kind of well-known and all the students went to, and so we had gone there. And so I snuck in the back of the restaurant and said, because I'm suave and, 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 and romantic like this, I said, look, we've ordered a pepperoni pizza. Right, marry me in pepperoni on the pizza. Because this is fancy, right? This is the way I roll. And so, of course, in this, this place, all the waiters... I hear, hey, this guy's going to propose to his, his girlfriend. And all the kitchen staff and everybody, all the dishwashers all come out with the pizza. And so here they come with this pizza and this crowd of people. And they put the pizza on the table. And I come around beside the table. And I got to one knee and I looked at her. And I'm thinking she's surely seen where it says marry me in pepperoni. And she's looking at the pizza and she's looking at the people. And she looks at me and she says, they didn't cut her pizza. So, I love you, baby, and I'd marry you all over again. (laughs) But when we read betrothed, we think engaged. But it's a totally different process in those days. So this is the way it would happen. 
there would be a family and a family over here, and the parents would talk, and they would talk about and discuss and decide that the parents were compatible, that this would work out. Typically speaking, and I've heard a lot made about their ages. We don't know. The text doesn't say. But generally speaking, usually the female, would, we would consider, would be very young, 14, 13 years old. And the male would have established himself in his trade, so he would probably be 28 to 30 years old, generally speaking. Now, Joseph, I've, I've read places where people think he was way older. The text doesn't say. We don't know. But that's generally speaking. So what would happen is, is those parents would come together and discuss whether or not they could, they could work it out. And then the, the uh, bride, uh, the groom, bridegroom would be paid a price, and, and all this would happen. And, and here we go. And so there, it isn't just a situation, though, where the, the, the boy and the girl were told, this is who you're going to marry. They would actually have a meeting where the, the fathers would agree on this contract, and then the, the, the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be would sit down. The bride-to-be would make a drink. When we lived in Turkey, they still do it this way. And what they make is tea, and as kind of a funny joke, they make the tea, instead of using sugar, they put salt in it. And so her acceptance of this contract is to put the drink out. His acceptance of the contract is to drink the cup. And so what would happen is the bridegroom would sit there, the the bride-to-be would put this cup out, and then he would drink the cup. That meant that they were betrothed. It was a legal contract at that point. If anything, they didn't uh, consummate the marriage at that point. That wasn't until the wedding. But at that point, it was legally binding that they were betrothed. And so the groom would then leave and go back to his father's house and build a place for he and his wife to live. And then up to a year, 18 months, they didn't know when, the bride would be waiting. She'd have all her girls together, and they would have their lamps, and they would be waiting. And then when the the groom had everything prepared in the house, he would call his boys, and they would all go over, and they'd make a big raucous noise, and they'd blow trumpets, and they would come, and he would get his bride. And he would take her back to the place that he had prepared. Now, that was a big party and a big celebration. And if you're a believer, all that should make a lot of sense to you. So, Joseph and Mary are betrothed. They have not consummated the marriage, but that contract has been signed and it's legally binding. And so Mary comes to Joseph and says, or before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now this speaks volumes about the character of Joseph. Because Joseph uh, could have, I mean, let's put ourselves in their position. If he's engaged to her, he knows how their relationship has gone, and she comes to him and says, I'm pregnant. We all know where his mind's going to go. And she says, no, but this is from the Holy Spirit. And he's like, right, okay, sure, whatever. Now she, growing up in a Jewish world where they all looked for the Messiah, we read in her Magnificent when she sings, she is overwhelmed by the fact that God has chosen her. She is the handmaiden of God. But you've got to know at this moment that this is a moment where she's afraid She doesn't know how Joseph is going to react. And Joseph says to himself, look, 
I love this girl. She seems like a nice girl. Clearly, I'm not going to marry her because she's pregnant, but I'm instead of shaming her and humiliating her in front of God and everybody, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the next town over and I'm going to get, get my buddy who's a, who's a leader and we're going we're gonna to divorce quietly and keep this under the table. So Joseph, being a just man, did not want to put her to shame, and so that, that's what happened. Now, as he's considering this, these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And so he's thinking about these things. Obviously, if this had happened to you, you'd be worried, you'd be concerned, you don't know what's going on. And in a dream, all of a sudden an angel comes to him. And that word behold there, we kind of read over that because it feels marbleized. But that is, um, that is a word that, that, that it would be the equivalent of in a text message, OMG. It's like, look, behold, oh, Wow. So Joseph is worried, concerned about these things, and then, bam, there's an angel. And this angel says, hey, slow your roll. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, think about what that community would have thought. Joseph here, in his obedience to God, I want, I want to read a quote from a guy named uh, David Ng. He's a uh, scholar at, um, uh, well, no, I'm not going to read the quote. I'm going to read the quote. Let me just read the quote from David Ng. It's, he says, Joseph took responsibility, sacrificed his reputation, wedded a vulnerable Mary, raised a child not biologically his own. He did this because he trusted that Jesus was who the angel said he was. So Joseph is put in a position where everybody in that community is going to think that he morally failed. When he decided to marry, to, to marry Mary, he sacrificed his reputation, what everybody thought of him. He made himself vulnerable in the eyes of the community. He probably hurt himself in his business. He put himself out there all because God said he was going to do something and Joseph believed and he acted. That's a picture of faith. We've talked a lot in this church about what faith means and we, we sometimes believe that faith means believing something really, really, really hard. But faith is acting even when we don't understand. Faith is obeying what God's word tells us to do. The writer goes on. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So that's confusing because just a few minutes ago we were told, you shall call his name Jesus. How do we reconcile that? We have Emmanuel, we have Jesus. So let's deal with um, Jesus first. The word Jesus, Yeshua, it's the same name that Joshua had. It's just because of the way that it came to us. Uh, Joshua's name came to us through one language train, and, and Jesus' name came to us to another, so they kind of got confused, but it's Yeshua. And it literally means God saves. Now, we must recognize that we're in desperate need of a Savior. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. They've all gone out of their way. They've together become Come unprofitable. There's none good, no, not one. 
everyone is in desperate need for a Savior. If we got what we deserve, none of us here would be here right now. And so Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came as a Savior that we on our own were bound and headed to a devil's hell and that God rescued us. That is amazing. That is what we desperately need. No one is saved of their own merit. For by grace you're saved through faith. It is God's gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In the book of Psalms, David confesses that we need a Savior. In Psalm 18, he said, He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of the many waters. He rescued me from a strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God loves you, and he saved you. So often, we, in all of our talk in the church, we talk about how God so loved the world and that God saves the world. But I want you right now to just stop for a second and not think about the world. I want you to think about the fact that God made a way for you. To call on his name and be saved. What that text in Psalm says, he delights in you. Not the world. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you. I read something on uh, Instagram the other day that said, When God saved me, he took into account my stupidity. And so that I find that thought very comforting. God knew you. He knew your likes, your dislikes. He knew your character. He knew, knew the kind of person that you are. And he loved you so much that he sent his son to save you. I don't care what you've done in your life. I don't care if you're the queen of England or you're a slave. That is amazing news that God loves you you. And so that name Jesus encapsulates that. He is the great rescuer. When kids come to me and they say, uh, hey, Pastor Tom, uh, I got saved. I want to get baptized. And I'll say, that is awesome. You got saved. What did you get saved from? And I want them to understand that what we deserve is God's wrath and that God saved us from that. We're saved from God, by God, to the glory of God. And so that's what that name Jesus means. So later in the text, he shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then later in the text, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So his name, Jesus, tells us what he does, but Emmanuel tells us who he is. And that name, Emmanuel, is mind-boggling. I mean, I can, I can pretty easily deal with God being a rescuer. 
I can relate to that. I can think about that. But this name, Emmanuel, this is taking it to a different level. This is God with us. I want to share with you guys a story that happened right here in this church. I've I've shared with several because I'm so excited about it. But a lot of you know that we have a a member here, um, Bobby Washburn, who uh, two weeks ago was supposed to have surgery that would reverse a colostomy. He had uh, a, a piece of part of his intestines that had gotten backed up and actually burst inside of his body. And so that, it was a horrible situation. He was in the ICU for a long time. They actually thought he was going to die. He pulled through with that, but he had to have a colostomy. And so uh, a few weeks ago, they were going to do a surgery where they go in and uh, they, they fixed a hernia and some other stuff, and then they were supposed to reverse the colostomy. They opened him up, and they looked inside, and he was absolutely filled up with cancer. And they said, well, a surgery that was supposed to take four hours and 15 minutes, the doctors came out and said, Sue, I need to talk to you. They went into a room, which is never a good sign in the hospital, by themselves. And she said, there's nothing really we can do. If we reverse the colostomy, he, he's just so eat up with cancer that, that it would rupture again, and he would probably die before he left the hospital. And so we've just sewn him back up and left it the way it is. We don't know where the cancer comes from. We don't know if it's kidney cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, because it's all over his insides. We don't know uh, what it is. We've taken some biopsies. We'll get back with you. And different cancers respond different ways. But the, the oncologist at UAB who's been doing this for 30 years looked Bobby Washburn in the face and said, go home, enjoy the holidays with your family, and you know what the implication of the rest of the story is. Last Tuesday, I went over to Bobby's house, and we just went over to talk, and while I was there, we planned his funeral. He gave me some cheap music. This is what I want sung at my funeral. This is what I want you to preach on. I want you to talk about this, and we planned out his funeral. On Friday of this week, he was supposed to get uh, the report from the doctor on what the cancer is so that they could come up with whether or not uh, they could do any kind of chemo or anything, and so he goes into the doctor's office. The doctor sits down with him and says, I've been doing this for 30 years. I've never seen anything like this. There's not a cancer cell in your body. The the doctor said, I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on, but you're fine. Go train for a marathon. And Bobby said that she literally backed out of the room. Like, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and leave this with you. Now, Here's why Emmanuel is so important. If God chose to heal Bobby, God is with him. If God chose to let it be cancer and it ravaged him and he died in three weeks, God is with him in both of those scenarios. He is never alone. That God doesn't say that you're not going to walk through the shadow of the death. And there's people in this room who've had loved ones that had the same prognosis and they buried the one that they loved and they can stand here with me and say, God was with me the whole time that we walked through the valley of the shadow of death and God hasn't just rescued you, he stays with you. He's got his arm around you and he's walking with you. As believers, we are never alone. 
We always have that Savior walking beside us. We always have the King who created everything, who said, I am with you. In Romans chapter 8, we read where Paul said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famines, nakedness, danger or sword? Now that implies that there are Christians and there are times when we will go through famine, persecution, nakedness, danger or sword. Just because we're going through hard times doesn't mean that God's abandoned you. He's with you. Jesus promised us in Matthew 28, I am with you even to the end of the age. The beauty of Emmanuel is different than the beauty of Jesus. The beauty of Jesus is, I have rescued you. You can be free, and him who has the Father is free indeed. Emmanuel says, not only have I rescued you as you go through this life, that because of the curse of sin, because of the fact that we live in a fallen world, is full up with pain. God says, I've not just saved you and set you loose to go survive. No, I'm with you so that in the midst of the pain, you can praise. Oh, thank you, God, for the name Emmanuel. So on that day, when that baby came, everything that he did was shot through with love. God loved you enough to save you. God loved you enough to change you into the image of Christ. And God loves you. God loves you so much that he's promised he's with you through everything that you go through. This week as I've been preparing, and if the the musicians want to come, as I've been preparing this sermon, there's been a song that's been rolling through my head. I couldn't get it out of my head. And so this morning, I was that preacher, and I said, Brian, can we sing this song? I want to read the lyric. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the sky of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. As you celebrate this Christmas... As you go from this place, as you go and march into 2020, if you learn anything from this place, know that God loves you and he is with you. Father God, I pray that we are overwhelmed by the goodness and the grace of God. I pray that this morning as we contemplate your advent, that we drink deeply from the well of your love and we go from here knowing that we are loved by the God that created the universe loved so much that he sent his only son oh God thank you, thank you, thank you that you sent your son Jesus that you sent your son Emmanuel